Hey, good morning, everybody. So glad you're here. So glad that you're here. Turn in your Bibles over to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth cha- Actually, turn to Ruth 1 because we're going to take you through the book. Uh, we come to a time in the uh, narratives, and we're in this series called The Story, and we're making our way through the major narratives of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, if you've been with us in this series, you should have noticed by, uh, so far the incredible coherency in Scripture, that how it's all correlated and working together. And this is what's amazed scholars who study literary works of antiquity for hundreds and hundreds of years, is that you've got this book, thick book, uh, written by various authors over hundreds of years, and there's incredible continuity. You, know, you didn't realize that dating these letters is actually a science. We can date letters by what they were written on, the types of, uh, uh, of ink used, or in some cases, just the type of writing material. So we're able to date the book so we know that there are books thousands of years older than some of the books in the Bible, and we're able to date them. And what's incredible is these men and women lived in different generations, and yet the continuity is unbelievable, which is why it makes the Bible as the Word of God believable. And that's why so many have found their hope and their uh, meaning and significance in Christ. Now, we come to, a, come to a book, a little book, stuck right in the middle of the Old Testament named Ruth. Ruth is not even an Israelite. She's a Moabite. So, so literally, she's not even of the people of God, and yet she's right in the Old Testament. It's the story of her life. It's an incredible story. It's almost like God says this, hey, uh, just make sure you don't miss the message that God has for you. Don't get lost in these narratives of God with his people Israel and the historical references made to them. Make sure you understand what the Bible is all about. It's almost like God says, let's take a break. Let me talk to you about Ruth. Now, to get you started, uh, how many of you are Dodger fans? Be proud. <laughs> now, if you're a Dodger fan, you know the right field uh, phenom, uh, Yesil Puig. And Yesil, uh, my friend Anthony McMahon has taken me to a few Dodger games, and I, I enjoy just watching him throw a baseball. He's got a cannon arm, a great bat, young player, but his story is quite intriguing. As a matter of fact, I read an article this last week. Uh, that Brett Ratner has actually acquired the rights to make a movie based on Yasil Puig's journey from Cuba into America, a movie that he's going to call Escape from Cuba. It is a remarkable story. We don't have all the details yet, but we do know that it includes things like hunger and thirst and captivity and torture and the drug cartel and ransom and bribery and even threats on Puig's life. And as I read the article, I thought, you know, what is it that would make a person that would make a person leave their homeland with very little uh, uh, of their own, uh, uh, I don't know, suit, uh, their clothes, their whatever, you know, take a small suitcase, leave everything that they're familiar with behind and come to a land that they don't yet know. Why, why, would, you, why would you get on a boat in the open sea, too many people on a boat with the risk of, of death, or why would you climb a fence at the risk of being shot? Why would you do that? Now, the answer is easy, isn't it? This is not a political sermon, don't worry. The answer is easy because the life you have right now is not good and you have hopes and dreams of a better life in the land that you're going, right? One of my favorite movies is a movie by Steven Spielberg. It was a cartoon I used to watch with my kids. It was called American Tell. And Fievel, the lean mouse, would talk about going to America and he would say, in America, all the streets are paved with cheese. You're hoping that you're leaving this land and going to a better land. Yes, I realize that Yassel Puig left $17 a day playing in the Cuban Baseball League to $42 million over seven years. Yes, I got that part. But for most of us, it doesn't work out like that, does it? 
and we still risk our lives. Now, this story is a fantastic story about two immigrants, and their names are Ruth and Naomi. Now, the reason this is such a crucial story is according to the Bible, Naomi's married to a dude named Elimelech. Elimelech, name, his name comes from two words, Eli, or El, which is Elohim, God, and Melech, which means king. So his name means God is king. But something happened along the way to Elimelech, and we're given those clues in the first chapter, and unless you really do some in-depth study, you're not going to see them, you'll just read over them. But evidently in Ruth chapter 1, a famine has come into the land of Israel. And so here are the 12 tribes divided up, and Elimelech takes Naomi, who are both Hebrew-born, they're Israelites, and moves them into Moab. Now Moab is a bad, bad place. They have a plurality of gods, but worse than they have this god called Chemosh, who requires human sacrifice. Even children are sacrificed on the altars. So Elimelech, to escape famine, and let me just make a comment here, we have a very difficult time in believing that God would send calamity on anybody, right? And the media really strikes hard at us when we even mention that. That's because we don't understand the holiness of God. Because the reality is you've seen this cycle numerous times in the Old Testament. What happens? God blesses. Okay, and thank God America's nothing like this. God blesses. And the very blessings he gives us become our distraction, right? And then God becomes an inconvenience. You see what I'm saying? God gives a land flowing with milk and honey, and the milk and honey become distractions. So much so, I guarantee, sometimes you don't want to pray because there's something good on television. Sometimes you don't want to read your Bible because there's some party to go to. And sometimes you really don't even want to come here because you could be at the beach. All of these are blessings God has given. And those blessings, rather than honoring God, they become distractions till we get to the point where actually God becomes an inconvenience. And in some way, we're a little bit envious. We don't want to have to do anything because that, that, the reason is we've not been transformed yet. We still look at it as something that's a legality rather than something that's an opportunity to come into community with God. But when that happens in the life of God's people, guess what he does? He sends calamity because only calamity will wake them up to repentance so he can give blessings again. God is not uh, an enabler. And he'll do the same in your life and mine. And the best thing you can do when God sends discipline into your life is to humble yourself, not to run from it. If you run from it, things get worse. That's exactly what happens to Elimelech and Naomi. They run to Moab to escape the famine. They run to a country. Remember, the Moabites were grave enemies of the Israelites. And all of this demonic uh, uh, worship happening down in Moab, and Elimelech, somewhere along the way, even though his name means God is king, lost his way. Because in the first chapter, you read that Elimelech and Naomi go into Moab. They have two sons. But there's a confusion here because their sons' names are Malon and Kilion. These are Canaanite names. For Naomi, Hebrew-born, Elimelech, Hebrew-born, to have two sons and give them Canaanite names because the only worst enemies to Israel than Moab were the Canaanites. Elimelech probably had more than one wife. And Naomi's probably raising the kids. He takes Naomi. He goes to Moab. In Moab, the very thing he was trying to get away from actually ends up happening to him. They find tremendous poverty. They have to sell all the property back in Israel to make ends meet, but ends don't meet. They're reduced to poverty and ultimately finally death. And this is where the story gets very sad because now you have Naomi. She's by herself. Her sons are, have died. Her husband has died. They've sold all her land in Israel. She's got no land. 
She's in exile with no husband, no land, no hope, no future. And Naomi's old, which means she's not going to remarry. Not because she's not attractive, but because in ancient civilization, you did not marry for companionship, love, or sex. You married to expand your family name, to expand your territory, to produce cheap labor, sons and daughters, to farm the land. You kids ought to be thankful you're not born in ancient civilization. <laughs> and your significance and meaning is tied to the size of your family and the size of your property. Aren't you, again, aren't you so glad that we Americans would never live such antiquated lives where our significance would be tied to how much money we have <laughs> or how big our house is or what social circles we run in. And so Naomi can no longer give any of that to a man. She's as good as dead, no husband, no sons, no family. Then there's a tiny turn in the story in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So here's what happens. Israel repented after the calamity, just like God intended. And God was able to bless them then and return food to the land. Naomi hears about it, and she says, oh, I'm going to go home. I've got nothing. When she decides to go home, leave Moab, and go back into her home country, her daughters-in-law, Orpah, and Ruth want to go with her. So they follow her out uh, by the road. As a matter of fact, just quickly, uh, do you know that Oprah Winfrey got her name from this Bible story? Uh, she was supposed to be called Orpah, but her mother misspelled the name on the birth certificate. True story. She's supposed to be Orpah. Orpah means stubborn. I don't... I don't know what Oprah means, probably cash, but <laughs> she was supposed to be called Orpah and Ruth. Anybody remember Dr. Ruth? No, I'm just kidding. Orpah and Ruth follow her, and Naomi says, go back. Go back. You have no future in Israel. Go back home. She loves her daughters-in-law. Go back. May the Lord show you kindness. May you have a husband. May you have a family. May you have everything that will give you your significance in this world. And then they kiss goodbye, and they weep. Now, the truth is Naomi knew this was a bad move for Orpah or Ruth to follow her into Israel. Here's why. Because they are both Moabite women. They're not Hebrew by birth. And Moabite women to come into Israel to live, they're going to be raped and tortured, enslaved. They're not going uh, to be humbly accepted. And Naomi knows this. So she says, uh, by the way, just, just to give you a feel for this, for, for Naomi, for Ruth and Orpah to go back into Israel would be like, it would be like uh, somebody going into Dodger Stadium and sitting in the bleacher section dressed as a giant fan. You got it now? Yeah, that, that, don't, that doesn't work. Naomi says to her daughter-in-laws, go home. I'm in chapter 1, verse 11. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons tonight, you're going to wait till they grow up? The point is Naomi is going home to die. She has nothing, no land, no money, no husband, no sons. She's going home. She just wants to go home and die. In fact, just so you know, for the record, there's only four ways she could survive. One, she could work in the fields, but she's too old. Two, she could get married, but she's too old, and nobody's going to marry a woman whose childbearing days are over in the ancient world. Your children could support you, but both of her children have died back in Moab. Or, she could, or you could rent your land that you own, but all her land is gone. They had to sell it to make ends meet, even though ends did not meet in Moab. Now, the question is, how do you get in chapter 1 when Naomi says, It is bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. How do you get from that to Ruth chapter 4 when it's the end of the story 
And here's how, this is the last scene of this book, okay? The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. How does all that happen? And how can Naomi, who's too old to bear children, whose childbearing days are over, now have a son? As a matter of fact, how do you get from the point when Naomi first came back into Israel, her friends recognized her and said, hey, Naomi, it's you. She said, don't call me Naomi, because Naomi means pleasant. She said, I've changed my name to Mahra, which means bitterness. How do you get from that to everything's good? And the key verse is is Ruth chapter 4, verse 14. Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. Now, stay with me. Here's what you're going to find. In the story, there are three redeemers. Three of them. Not one, not two. Three redeemers. And this word kinsman redeemer means it's the word goel. It's the word for the person who comes and ransoms you, redeems you, restores you, and gives you new life. Here's the first one. The first one is Boaz. We haven't met him yet, but the story's powerful because when Ruth comes back, remember, Orpah stays, right? She stays to launch probably a television career. And so Ruth, <laughs> Ruth follows Naomi, and when they get there, they realize they're back in Israel and they've got nothing, so Ruth decides that she is going to start gleaning. Now, what is gleaning? In the Jewish law, it stated that landowners could not harvest all the way around the edges. You were not allowed to maximize profits. So you had to leave 10% on the edges of your land for the poor people to come and to glean, to collect the wheat and the barley so that they would have means for survival. And that was the law. So Ruth is basically saying this, I'm going to go and glean, and I'm going to try to get some food for our survival. I'm going to find a piece of property. I'm going to find a land that maybe we can survive. Here's the problem, though. Ruth is not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. And as soon as the men who are harvesting an Israelite field see a woman who is from Moab, they're going to kill her, probably rape her, abuse her, and enslave her. It's a no-win situation. She's taking her life into her own hands. And yet we find in Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, notice how the author keeps telling us Ruth the Moabite? All right, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. That's an amazing statement. Because Naomi knows that if Ruth goes, she's probably not going to come back. But she also knows if Ruth doesn't go, they're both going to die. You might as well take the chance. So she says, go ahead. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, do you see what's happening? There's a relative of Naomi who has a field, a relative of Elimelech, her husband. His name is Boaz, and it just so happens that the field that Ruth ends up is a relative of Naomi's. Ha, go figure. Let me say something to you. You need to hear this. All of us need to hear this. Your God is too small. Listen, God is able to be completely involved in every detail of your life, while at the same time being involved in every detail of billions of other people's lives. See, you think, I just can't fathom that. Do you know why? Because you're not eternal. God created time and space, which means he's not subject to anything he's created. 
He's not limited by time and space. He can be fully, directly, completely engaged and involved in every detail of your life and every other life, past, present, future. That's how big God is. So God, if he wants to, can lead Ruth to a field possibly where she could be ransomed and redeemed. Now here's the problem. No, it's not a problem. Boaz. Boaz sees this new girl gleaning on his land. You would expect him to go to his mates and say, dude, dude, who's the new gleaner? She's kind of cute. Because <laughs> Bo knows. <laughs> and to show you how dangerous all this is, Bo goes to Ruth and says, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. In other words, Ruth, man, I'm so glad you're here because if you were any other place, they'd kill you by now. And don't go away from here. Man, you need to wear out a path from my field to where it is you're staying and don't go outside that territory. Stay here with the women who work for me. These are not the gleaners now. You would harvest, the men would harvest, and the women would pick it up in baskets and collect it. She said, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. Don't glean, in other words, around the edges. You come into the middle and harvest the good stuff. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. He would have to. And whenever you are thirsty, go get a drink from water jars that the men have filled. So Boaz says, Ruth, harvest right here the good stuff. And my men will take care of you. They won't lay a hand on you. And Boaz says, Ruth, my men will meet your thirst. Now stay with me. She's so astounded and overwhelmed by the generosity shown by somebody who has the power to slay her that she's so happy that she runs home to Naomi. And remember, she doesn't have the gleanings around the edges. This is like going into a butcher's shop and sweeping up the stuff on the floor and taking that home. No, she's got the rack of lamb hanging in the freezer. And she brings it, and you know what Naomi's going to say? She's going to say, girlfriend, where did you glean today? <laughs> no, what, the rack of lamb. Got, and Ruth says, Boaz filled. And when Naomi hears that, Naomi says, the Lord bless him. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. That's that word goel, kinsman redeemer is a better translation. Now what is that? Because you've got to know, Leviticus 25, when Joshua brought the people into the promised land, divided the land, God knew the ebb and flow of life. He's a generous God, and God wants families to stay together. So he says, I'm going to make provision. If one of these families loses their land, I want to make two provisions in order for them to be able to get their land back. Because God knew that families need to stay together. It's important for everybody involved. And so he said, if you lose your land, whether through just bad management or a poker game, whatever, every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, all the land would go back to its original owners. That way families could stay together. So if you were a son and daughter and your parents mismanaged the land and lost it, then you as the son or daughter at the year of Jubilee could get the land back and have a second chance. That is our God, right? The God of second chances. Now, the other thing is, if you didn't want to wait 50 years, that's a long time, then you could buy back the family land, but it could only be bought back by a kinsman redeemer, somebody that was related to the family. So Uncle Tom could come and say, hey, uh, you know, your family lost this land, but I'm a relative. I'm going to buy it back so that you have a hope and a future. And so you can understand Naomi when she heard that Ruth had attempted to glean on Boaz's land, a relative of Elimelech. And who knows how it happened? She said, man, I forgot about Elimelech. We didn't like him when we were growing up. But I like him now. Boaz. Boaz, a relative. Uncle Bo. Bo, no. And she felt like she was getting her life back. Now, here's what you have to understand, though. If Boaz were to serve as the kinsman redeemer, it's going to cost him a lot. It's going to be enormous. He would first have to buy back the land, which would put him in debt. 
Yet Naomi's family could not be truly restored because there's no heirs to pass the land on to. Her sons died back in Moab. The other thing he could do is marry the least or the last member of the family, and then she would produce children to create heirs. But the problem is the last member of the family is Naomi. She's too old to produce children, so her days of childbearing are over. And if Boaz marries Naomi, that means all of his treasures and property and land would go to Naomi's dead sons, which means ultimately when he dies, it would all go back to the state. Now, what kind of man would do that in a civilized or uncivilized world where property and family name and its extension meant everything? But there is one other option. He could marry Ruth. The Levitical code allowed him to actually marry Ruth, the daughter-in-law, and that would give Naomi her life back because she would have grandchildren, and then the grandchildren would become heirs. Now, what happens next is common in the ancient world. I don't think it's ever happened in America, but there are still places in the modern world it still happens. Ruth finds out where Boaz is sleeping. And she goes in the middle of the night and she uncovers his feet and puts her head on his ankles. And I pick up the story in Ruth 3, verse 8. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. Yeah, that would startle you if a woman uncovered your feet and laid her head on your <laughs> ankles. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Now, this is beautiful. Remember how we talked about that when you wanted to enter into a covenant with somebody, you acted out the covenant first. Well, Ruth is proposing. You thought only men proposed in the Old Testament. You were wrong. Ruth is saying, cover me with your garment. And it's kind of metaphorical. Cover me with your love. Cover me with your provision. Cover me with your security and protection. Take me to be your wife. Be my husband, my provider. Cover me. Redeem me. Now, when my wife, Robin, begged me to marry her, she did very, very similar <laughs> things. Matter of fact, I think she said exactly what uh, happened in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. Spread the corner of your garment over me, that you are my kinsman redeemer, my go well. You can give me back my name. You can redeem. You can rescue. You can deliver. And to show you that Boaz knows exactly what married life is like, he says in Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, I will do everything you ask. Now, there's a man who knows what to do with his woman. <laughs> everything you ask. So Boaz ends up doing two things. Number one, he takes all the debt, all of it, and he gives Naomi and Ruth their lives back. He marries Ruth. And you have to understand, on the Levitical code, as soon as he marries Ruth, all of his wealth becomes hers legally, immediately, and automatically. The debts are not merely paid for. She's given an entirely new life. It's rags to riches. But there's a second redeemer. Notice this book is not called the book of Moab or the book of Boaz. It's called the book of Ruth. Why Ruth? Because when Naomi leaves Moab to go back to Israel, Orpah and Ruth come with her, and they're going to go, and remember, Naomi says to Ruth, Orpah does go back, probably to launch a television career, but Ruth stays, and Ruth, she says, Naomi says, don't do this. Your life is back there. So, man, stay with me now. Your life is back in Moab. There you could find a husband. You could have children. You could have land. And everything that gives you significance, you can have there. But if you go with me to Israel, you're probably not going to last a day. Listen to Ruth's response. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. 
two amazing things here. Isn't it true that when you're an immigrant and you leave your land, you're expecting that the land you go to to be better, right? That's why you leave. But do you know what Ruth is saying here? That's the reason people risk their lives to go to the land. But what Ruth says to Naomi is, Naomi, I'm going to go with you to a new land, and I know, in fact, I expect it to be worse for me. Who does that? Why does she do it? She's grown to love Naomi. Maybe she saw Naomi's resolve even when she's losing her husband and her children. Maybe she saw that Naomi's God was so powerful to sustain her during the deepest and darkest days, even even in a place like Moab. But I'll tell you what we do know. When she says, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me, she doesn't use Elohim, the generic name for God. She uses the covenant, the relationship name that comes out of the burning bush toward uh, toward Moses, which shows that Naomi has brought the God of Israel into Ruth's life. And Ruth has a difficult choice to make. It's clear, but it's difficult. She can leave Moab, all of the potential material gain, all of it. She can leave it behind. Go to Israel. She would gain physical attributions, but she would lose her soul. Or she could stay in Moab and gain all that materialism, lose her soul, and never know the God of Israel in the way that God was meant to be known. Don't, don't pass over this. She's got a choice to make. And there are some of you that need to get out of Moab. Moab is filled with darkness and demonic activity and the worship of Kamash. Ruth knows she's not strong enough to stay. That every day she stays, even though she's going to have material wealth and a social circle and a husband and children and property and land, that day after day it will suck the spiritual vitality right out of her. She would rather live in Israel with God and without the material possessions than in Moab with the material possessions but never knowing God. Everybody in the room has a Moab. For some of you, man, you're in a relationship, you better get out of it. It's sucking you dry. And as day after day goes by, the impact and influence on you is taking you further and further away from God and more and more into stuff that just doesn't matter. For some of you, it's a job. For some of you, it's the community in which you live. It's a club to which you belong. And your biggest fear is that if you don't run in these circles that you're not going to have your position, that your power, your material wealth. And I'm saying to you, from the get-go in the Bible, God says, make a choice. It's better for you to lose those things and to gain your soul than it is to gain the whole world and lose eternity. you got to decide. Sometimes it's a relationship. Sometimes it's even a church. And I hope and pray to God it's not this one, but sometimes it's even a church. Sometimes it's even a family. Some of you men may have a mother who belittles your wife, who is cruel to her, 
and you left. Remember, you leave and cleave. And the best thing you could do, you say, Jeff, are you saying I could separate from my family? No, but I'm saying your first protection is your wife. Love her and protect her. Maybe you don't need to move completely out of Moab, but you need to not spend so much time there. For all of you, it's something. And you've got to make a choice. She makes the choice. She knows that if she goes with Naomi, there's a chance. There's a chance. Naomi will not die. But if she stays in Moab, she knows that Naomi will most probably die. And Ruth herself will die a spiritual death. And will never know the God of Israel. Now, just follow me here. If Naomi's going to have a life, Ruth has to give up hers. Do you hear that? If Naomi's going to have a life, Ruth has to give hers up. If Naomi's going to have a home, a land, a future, a family, Ruth's going to have to give up all of that for Naomi. And so Ruth impoverishes herself. Naomi becomes rich. Ruth loses herself. Naomi finds herself. Ruth suffers outside the gate. And because she suffers outside of her home, Naomi is welcomed back in. Naomi has been redeemed. Now, there's a third redeemer, and it's the end of the sermon, and I need your attention here, okay? Third redeemer. Before I mention that, can I ask you a question? What is it that really changed Naomi and Ruth's life? Okay, power of God transformation. Do you understand the power of friendship? Do you understand that there's an expectation God has? He gives you generosity so you will be generous to someone. He gives you mercy so you'll show mercy. He inconveniences himself so that you'll inconvenience yourself for somebody else. Do you know that when you come and stand before God, he does not want you to have an empty hand? Not, not good works, but hopefully you'll be holding somebody else's hand that you have brought to Christ through relationship and friendship. From the get-go, Jesus said that we will be fishers of men and women. That you and I, listen, I'm glad that you come. And I hope that the messages inspire you. But I'm smart enough to know that what really changes people are not these messages, but your investment in their lives. When I was in seminary, I had great professors, but they didn't transform me. The transformation happened as they dispensed the information. I had a, a friend by the name of John Whitaker who now teaches at Boise Bible College. And he and I would talk about these things and experience the word together and encourage each other, hold each other accountable. We learned more from each other probably than we did our profs. Ruth says to Naomi, wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you stay, I'll stay. I'll die with you if you die. Is there somebody in your life that you would say that to? And if not, why? Why? Whose life are you changing? For who are you inconveniencing yourself to invest in somebody for the sake and the cause of Christ? Ruth and Naomi transformed one another. Naomi showed Ruth her God. Ruth sacrificed her life that Naomi may have one. Now, do you see the third Redeemer? I want to show you how the story closes. And when you're reading Hebrew narratives and you come to obscurity, when you come to that obscurity, the writer's trying to create a tension in the story. And the tension is supposed to make you think about the bigger picture. 
to get out of the weeds and look from above. I want to show you what happens. It's very difficult at first, but I'm sure we'll get it. The story ends, verse 13 of chapter 4. Here's what happens. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman or a guardian redeemer. Now, who's the guardian redeemer? Boaz, right? Boaz, pretty clear. But look, the next verse. May he, Boaz, become famous throughout Israel. And here's where the obscurity starts. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. First of all, Boaz is not going to become famous throughout all of Israel just because he's the kinsman redeemer. You do for your family what you do. He's not going to be held to some hero. So that's a little obscure. He will renew your life and sustain you. Wow, that's a husband there, right? He'll renew your life and he'll sustain you. Okay, but you can see how it could apply. For your daughter-in-law, who's that? Ruth, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. That's just a metaphor for the perfect family. Seven is perfection. Ruth is better to you because there's something she's doing for you that's better than a perfect family. Has given him birth. Whoa, now we're messed up. All right, let's go back to the screen before. Let me show you. Boaz takes Ruth. They make love. They have a kid. The women said, Naomi, praise be to the Lord. who's given you the kinsman and redeemer. Next verse, may he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life, sustain you in your old age. Your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Wait a minute. It's the same him, he, he. Him, Ruth doesn't give birth to Boaz. She marries him. She gives birth to somebody else. Obed, who is the grandfather of David, King David, through whom the Messiah comes. Has the light been turned on yet? Do you see what this book is about? It's incredible. A book written thousands of years before Jesus ever appears. And here we got Ruth, or at least hundreds of years. Look at the redeemers. Boaz, what does he do? He removes all of her debt, and all of his wealth becomes Ruth and Naomi. Does that sound familiar? And he's the kinsman redeemer, the bridegroom. The groom and the bride, Boaz and Ruth, Boaz and Ruth. And then you've got Ruth. What does Ruth do? She leaves her home and goes to a distant land, knowing her life is going to be worse, but trusting ultimately it will be better. Does that remind you of anybody who left everything he had to come here knowing his life would be worse because he's going to die for you? But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross so that he would be seated on the right hand of the Father and you and I would be ransomed, redeemed. And everything that we've lost, everything is replaced to an infinitely greater degree because the king, when he comes into his kingdom, all of his wealth becomes yours. Do you see the book of Ruth, a Moabite woman, the gospel that's why she's included in the genealogy. He's our kinsman redeemer. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word became flesh. Hebrews tells us he had to become flesh because he didn't come to say, live a good life, God will accept you. No, he came to die the death we deserved, to pay our debt, to ransom us, and to give us a hope and a future. 
And anything that you've lost, anything that you've lost when you come to him, and when you leave Moab and you come to Israel, anything you lost is replaced. More than you could ever hope, dream, or imagine. I don't know what to say. I really don't. I've been here for seven years now. This is my seventh year, and I don't know what to say to convince you. Some of you've got to get out of Moab. You've been there far too long, but you're afraid to go to a new land because you're afraid if you leave this place, this place will not be as good. But because Jesus left his home and died for you, here's what he tells you. Everybody in the room wants a good life, but you're settling for far too less. God wants to give you a great one. But that will only happen when you leave the security of Moab and you give your heart and soul and you immerse yourself into the God of Israel as Ruth was willing to do. She forsake the things that gave her security in order, in order to gain the God who would give her all things. It's trust, isn't it? And the reason some of you have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom is because you don't fully trust that if you leave Moab completely and come to Israel that God will supply all your need. And as long as you do that, you will never know the God who loves and provides. Never.